You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. And there's a whole bunch of programs that I've got in my head that are half-finished, really keen to talk about uh, the Great Barrier Reef and reefs in general in the next little while. Uh, so those who live in Australia may have heard that a UNESCO report came out and was pretty damning about the state of the Great Barrier Reef. And it's an amazing feature and I've been there as a child and returned as an adult and so on. So I want to talk about that. But while finishing my master's and other pressures taking precedence, I've got another old piece that I've dug out, and it's entitled Groaning with Creation, which is a concept I've been thinking about a lot over the years. So let's begin. I used to have an old 1982 model Mazda 323. It was the family car, and when my dad went to be with Jesus, it was passed on to me. So uh, he had it for 15 years, and then I had it for 15 years, and it was pretty hard to let it go. I don't know if you've had uh, an older car, maybe it was a hand-me-down or your first car you bought secondhand, but you understand that, and it goes against the grain too as being someone who doesn't like to throw things out, but nonetheless, there's a problem with older cars is that they wear out and replacement parts become harder and harder to come by. I don't think cars are built with the same kind of built-in obsolescence that say your smartphone is, or your computer, or a whole bunch of other things like a TV and so on. They are built to last, but nonetheless, they're not built to last forever. In particular, with my Mazda, the carburetor needed replacing, but none were available. So instead, it had to be continually reconditioned. I don't know if you've ever driven a car with a blocked or a partially blocked carburetor. Putting your foot down on the accelerator does not deliver the results you want, and that can be problematic. Uh, growing up hills, in busy traffic, when you're in a hurry, when you're trying to pull out of um, a side street and flow, merge with the traffic. So it's it's a problem. So I groaned a lot with this car that it self-groaned. And um, in the end, it made sense to get a new one, to consign the old one to the wreckers. And indeed, I got uh, a set of four car mats for the price of the value of the car that I um, took in. Now, the reason that I spin this little yarn is that, you know, notwithstanding, obviously, in, in, in real life, there, there was a need to finally uh, set the car aside, but is that some Christians have this attitude towards the creation. They identify creation's groaning with natural disasters, some will see the groaning in the cycle of predation, death and life that occurs in ecosystems. 
Some Christians groan about what we are doing to creation, but many, however, will be more concerned about these changes from some quote-unquote end times framework, and I've spoken about this in other episodes, like the Left Behind series. Look, I must confess, I have not read any of the Left Behind books, and there's a good reason for that. I, I did read something similar. It was Frank Peretti's this present darkness or something of that order. But there's a good reason, because I don't think the theology is helpful. Um, and there's only so much time in the world to, to read so many books. Maybe one day when I've got a spare few hours to flick through one. But anyway. But to, to go back to my original story, many will see that the creation itself, the earth in which we live, is bound for the wreckers. And... Christians are expecting a new model, a new heavenly model. Now, one of the things I'm interested in is how we can learn to groan with creation in an empathetic, imaginative and hopeful manner. And a few weeks ago, I I talked about empathy a little bit um, uh, in reviewing a book uh, about being a beast and, and the, the author really getting alongside the creation. So I'm not proposing anything quite so out there today. You don't have to go swimming with otters or dig a burrow and be like a, a badger or some such. As, as amazing and interesting a story that was. But empathy, I think, plays a role, um, as we'll see. All the way back in 2009, I wrote a paper for Zadok Perspectives called The Groaning of Creation. And I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about Romans, the Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, from which the famous text where I'm getting this groaning language comes from uh, in Romans 8. And and dealing with that in an eco-missiological framework where creation is viewed as a uh, part of a mission field, both in terms of how we care for people by caring for the creation, but also caring for the creation is, is a fulfilling of our own mandate, almost a, a missional type thing. Well, not almost, absolutely, as being part of what I'm, I've called in previous episodes, the eco-missio day. So, uh, missio meaning mission, day referring to God. So, God's mission, which um, goes outside our own activities and indeed at times our own capabilities, but with an ecological focus. And um, anyone who's listened to this podcast at any length will know how I've spoken about, uh, for example, what we read in Revelation about God making all things new or in Colossians and Ephesians about all things being reconciled to God and taking seriously that all things phrasing. Something I hope to pick up on in another time, another episode, when we think about our understanding of atonement and what the cross achieves and how that's um, possibly broader than we sometimes think. Anyway, um, so in this paper and in and the, my exit thesis where I took the work from, I try and put Romans eight nineteen to 23 in its full uh, biblical context. Now these verses are often the rallying cry for the more ecologically sensitive Christian. It talks about the groaning of creation. But of course, Christians are very good at playing, you know, quote-unquote, my verse is bigger than your verse. So, and I've said, said this before, we all have a canon within a canon. And you will, a trivial example, of course, is that Christians will view the New Testament as being more relevant than the Old, and that there's some sense to that. Uh, hopefully you understand the, the sense of fulfillment of one and the other. 
you'll get red letter Christians who will focus particularly on the Gospels and the words of Jesus. Uh, and that's often a, a back reaction to those who read the Gospels through the lens of Paul and in particular their own reading of Paul. So there's a lot of tit for tatting in that regard. So it's necessary and not that difficult to show that Romans 8, 19 to 23 forms the climax of the narrative of the book, not the end of what Paul's saying. There's clearly um, several other chapters afterwards. The gospel is the announcement, so it's a message to proclaim, that Jesus is the world's true Lord and that those who are his people are known by their faith in him. With that phrase being justified by faith, just as it had been for Abraham, with whom the whole salvation project started. Salvation is for the Jew first and then the Gentile, so there's no room for anti-Semitism or indeed uh, successionist theology. There's this inclusive sense of both Jew and Gentile in God's plan. Uh, and the end goal of this salvation is not an eternal future in a disembodied heaven, but a renewed earth, not merely reconditioned like my carburetor so many times, but one that works as it is always meant to be. It reaches its end goal, or its telos, to use the Greek. One of the things that some Christians now struggle with is our part in all of this. Now, since Lynn White's famous paper, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, Christians have at times borne the brunt of the blame for the present state of affairs. This has been shown to be something of an overstatement, but sometimes, and in some places at least, the mud sticks because it deserves to. This has led some scholars to abandon, ignore, or at least marginalise texts like Genesis 1, 26-28, um, which talks about uh, the mandate for people to rule over creation. Well, in the first instance, of course, it's for Israel uh, to engage in agricultural activities in the land of Canaan. And then in, in a broader, broader sense, talks you know, you can expand it to think about human beings as a whole on the earth. So some want to minimise the idea that we are made in God's image because it sets us apart from the rest of creation. Instead of its stewards, we are its helpers. Apart from a good dose of John Walton and his book The Lost World of Genesis 1, it seems to me that Romans 8 helps us capture the fuller sense of our role in creation. So let me show you how. The creation is waiting for us, according to Paul in verse 19 of Romans 8, to be revealed as the sons of God. This sonship marks us out as heirs to the inheritance of um, inheritance, so just try to make sense of what I've written here, um, of um, a future world. Now note in the same passage Paul speaks about the children of God. So the sons in the sense of those the sons in the sense of those who inherit the kingdom by adoption are not merely males. So male and female and in a modern sense we'd um, accommodate a broader spectrum or some would at any rate creation has been subject to futility and bondage turn the page here uh, to corruption the presumed subjector is god but the reason is tacit rather than explicit it makes best sense to hark back to the idolatry of chapter one in romans as a result god hands us over to sin likewise as a result creation is subject to frustration and nowhere in the Bible can I at least find any explicit suggestion that animal death is a result of, quote-unquote, the fall, however you might understand that. It fits neither with the biblical or evolutionary narrative. 
Instead, it seems to me that a creation where God's image worships some other part of that creation is doomed to frustration. Now, granted Paul knew nothing of the environmental degradation that would occur in the centuries to follow, however, Paul could clearly see the effects of deforestation, including the spread of malaria in, in Rome, although he didn't, wouldn't have put the two together, but would have seen and understood the silting up of the ports and soil erosion. Of course, um, the Tiber River was a sewer. He would have been able to smell that. Uh, and in other places, I've talked about the effect of the fires, the cooking fires on air quality in Rome. Paul also knew of the false promises of creation's redemption um, to fecundic productivity under Augustus. And there was a famous proclamation that he was going to bring bounteous crops back uh, to the land. So perhaps this is a message we need to hear more of. Promises of endless production are empty ones. So the great green revolution has, has yielded uh, great goods, uh, but we're running into issues with fertilizer overuse and uh, dead zones in our lakes, rivers and oceans and, and a whole bunch of other things tied to um, an overzealous development of agriculture. And that all needs to be reined back in a way that's sustainable to, to feed up to 10 billion humans. So creation groans in birth pains, and it seems likely that this is a reference to the earth giving up its dead at the resurrection. Um, in another episode, I address the idea that it might be appropriate to call earth mother, insofar as it is the ground of our existence in both Genesis 2 and Romans 8. God gives the life, but the earth births and nurtures us. At the time of the resurrection, creation itself will be free from its corruption as it will obtain the freedom of our glory as God's children. That's in verse 21. Whatever this freedom looks like, it will be tied up with ours. Now, the astute reader might start to smell a rat. Not only does God place creation into frustration, making him ecologically suspect, but given that he is the one doing the liberating, doesn't that leave nothing for us human beings to do? Aren't we just along for the ride? And this is a common view, I think. I think I've addressed the former. We stuffed up and abdicated our rightful responsibilities. Creation suffers and groans like a choir without a choir master. And that's picking up, um, pretty sure that's Derek Kidner's uh, Genesis commentary. It, seem, it might seem a bit of a stretch given the long process of evolution and human beings' recent arrival on the stage. However, the Bible is not so backward about identifying human uniqueness, even if it does also very clearly discuss our solidarity with the rest of creation. We might not have any unique attribute, per se, physical or mental, but we have them in such combination to have the power to either destroy or let flourish the world around us. And in terms of relationship with the divine, we are most able to articulate and experience that in the fullest possible sense. So we need to own our identity as meaning-making spiritual apes. As for the second point, few would go against Paul's rhetorical question about going on sinning so that grace might abound. That's also in Romans. Indeed, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, after discussing the nature of the resurrection, Paul gives us an ethical encouragement. Nothing we do in the Lord is in vain, precisely uh, because we will be raised from the dead. We are therefore to live proleptically, living in the light of the future uh, that we have some foretaste of now. 
And after all, it is we who are the first fruits of the Spirit. So we'll carry on looking more about creation's groaning after the break. part of the program we started to tease apart Romans 8 and its idea of creation groaning in birth pains and that the Bible unabashedly presents human beings uh, with a unique identity and uh, a unique culpability possibly even more to the point in this context and being focused on a bodily resurrection not just going to heaven when you die there is a way or, or Paul sees how human groaning of our finitude and our sinfulness and, and all sorts of other things is so is tied up with the groaning of creation in the resurrection. So where does groaning fit in? We groan for the adoption of our bodies because we suffer now from our finitude and our fallenness. Creation groans for our redemption because it suffers from our folly and in our redemption will find its own. Furthermore, in verses 26 to 27, we do not know how to groan for ourselves. The Spirit groans for us. So we need a, a thoroughly uh, pneumatological Christianity. That is, a Christianity that embraces the role of the Spirit and beyond whatever model of inspiration of Scripture you have. Creation, God's image, and God's Spirit all groan to the same end. That's a lot of groaning. So it seems to me, if we are all headed to the same end, then we can all groan together. Creation groans for us to be manifest as who we really are. Can we not groan with it as we see how it suffers because of us? So, what will this groaning look like? I would suggest, and I've been an Anglican for an awfully long time now, that we start with liturgy, with prayer, and with our music. The people of God are God's people at prayer, and particularly corporately. It is one of the fundamental things that we do, particularly together, as I've said. Indeed, Romans 8 tells us about the Spirit's role in our prayers. Perhaps the first thing we need to do is to turn to the Spirit in our inability to know what to pray. Uh, this is, of course, in all areas of life and in our frustration and our suffering, uh, the, issue, the issues um, when it comes to ecological ones can seem overwhelming. Uh, global warming, rising sea levels, potential mass extinctions of God's created species. You've seen in the past massive oil spills together with droughts, famines, quote-unquote natural disasters. And, and let's be honest, with the way in which humans have perturbed the planet, there's nothing really that's quite so quote-unquote natural anymore about it. And then there's lack of political will and can, um, to, to really get stuck into things. And I spoke last week about a group I went with to Canberra to encourage political will, you know, to cheer on what's been done and to ask for even more. 
And we can also suffer compassion fatigue. You know, if you try to do things in your own strength when it comes to something, well, it comes to anything really, but when it comes to the magnitude of this um, problem, I'm focusing on particular, then we can really wear out. Surely it is in prayer that we must begin. Not as a substitute for action. It's not this empty kind of piety that I've often criticized, but because we cannot act without it. But I am saying that we can act. There is, of course, uh, a tension in Romans 8 that relates to our groaning. How much do we lean on the hope we have and how much the need for confession, for contrition, for feeling the pain of creation? It is not much of a sell when we focus on sin, be it sexual, environmental, economic or whatever. And this tension was felt uh, when I and a few others a number of years ago were involved in a project known as Hope for Creation. And the goal was to produce some resources for churches to use in an annual service, which unfortunately ended up coinciding with Father's Day. So I think that inhibited the takeoff, but it's part of the, it was in the same month as the seasons of creation. And in the end, two prayers were written. There was a prayer of thanks and hope and a prayer of confession and change. And I think we need to mourn and confess. I think it's true to say that, yes, guilt paralyzes, but hope energizes. However, we do want to lead people beyond guilt to godly sorrow and repentance. So there's a need for more prayers, more songs, more Bible teaching that all points us towards the reality that the creation is suffering and that we have contributed. All of us, in some way, particularly some more than others, and I've spoken about this before. So it's not a left or a green issue, nor pagan, whatever that might mean, but biblical. We need to mourn, we need to feel, we need to resensitize our cauterized consciences when it comes to creation care and our responsibilities. Now, as an urban dweller like no doubt many of you, I am aware of the separation we can feel between our transport methods, our diet, our consumption patterns, and the lives of other people and ecosystems on the other side of the world, or indeed the other end of my own country. So how is effective groaning achieved? Connections are always best drawn using imagery and stories rather than hard statistics, as important as they are, um, and have their own place. So, for example, one could draw attention to losses in, say, reptile species, uh, producing graphs and numbers. And, and they might not always have great appeal, because people prefer the small, furry, cuddly type. Or we could tell the story of Lonesome George, the 100-year-old Galapagos turtle, and the last of his kind. The sad tale of his death in captivity is not mere emotional manipulation, but the concretizing of the experience of his and many other species. It brings the general to the particular and draws out our empathy for other living things. And I've said um, earlier that empathy is important. Now, much of this empathy can also be drawn out by the rich use of imagery. We live in an information age. It's a truism, right? You're listening to this podcast online. You can grab hold of books and documentaries and podcasts and interviews and um, all manner of things. So there's little excuse uh, for not having access to technology for many of us um, to help undo the damage that it's done. What, what do I mean by that? That might sound a bit convoluted. But, so technology is, is both a great boon, a great um, enhancer of quality of life, 
uh, a great potential for, for achieving a lot of good, but it also has done great harm because after all, it's human beings using the technology. Um, you know, like many, I was dumbstruck by the before and after pictures of the Boxing Day tsunami showing the level of inundation and destruction. A quick internet search can reveal before and after images of Amazon rainforest that has been cleared uh, the state of glaciers, uh, how they've melted, cleared forests, images of oil-soaked birds. Um, and it's time that the church spent more time meditating upon these things and mourned them. Likewise, when we think of the groaning and other human beings caused by the groaning creation, stories and images speak louder than mere facts. So, for example, you could talk about statistics about malaria and its spread, and of course, we've beaten it back in many ways, and there's some exciting news about malarial drugs. But at the same time, we need to embrace stories like that of Andrew Gathiko, who's a tropical diseases expert. And um, I'm just trying to think what country he comes from, but they grow a lot of coffee there, because he grew up on... Uh, in a village where they grew coffee and it's, I think it's Kenya from memory and it's at elevation and he gets this call one day to discover that his own niece has caught malaria in the village in which he used to live where they never had the mosquitoes in the past because it was simply too cold. That for him no doubt was a story that really hit home and um, you can find um, videos of Andrew Gathiko in abundance on YouTube. So getting across those stories and, and embracing them and thinking about them and, and mourning the situations that people find themselves in. Now, another place where one's thinking might automatically go is vegetarianism or veganism. Many are rightly revolted by the tiny cages the birds who lay our eggs uh, are kept in, or some of them. Uh, I buy free-range eggs, and we've got our own chickens who live okay. Um or you might be revolted by videos leaked from uh, a few years ago. There was videos leaked from Indonesian abattoirs where Australia sends live export cattle, sheep. There is a strong motivation to ease the suffering of both domestic and wild animals. The former suffers from our cruelty in the way in which we they're raised and slaughtered. And some will add the very act of killing and eating another animal is cruel. We can debate that. That's for another time. Uh, we'll look a little bit at that below just really quickly. Now, wild animals, of course, suffer in so many ways from overfishing, habitat clearing for agriculture, global warming, bycatch from fishing. And we saw in 2019 here in Australia, leading into 2020, horrible bushfires uh, exacerbated by, by climate change. There is, of course, a difference between pragmatic non-eating, empathetic non-eating and proleptic non-eating. Yeah, I had to find some fancy words to bang in there. Let's look at them. Pragmatic non-eating sees that a reduced or non-meat diet reduces greenhouse gas emissions, land clearing, and can be good for human health. At the very least, the morning Christian should eat a creation-friendlier diet by consuming less meat. Um, yeah, I don't always put my diet where my mouth is at various times. I've been more flexitarian than others. Empathetic non-eating considers animal suffering and seeks to minimise it, though this can look uh, to things like free-range and organic meats, dolphin-friendly tuning, etc. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean not eating meat, but it's it's more empathetic in the way in which it uh, seeks to source it, the, the animal protein. Both these options seem to me to be useful ways to approach the issue of groaning through diet. 
Both leave room for thankful or grateful eating. Indeed, saying grace is one way of growing with creation, recognizing the source of our food and accepting limits, rather than grasping after more. The final idea, proleptic eating, is, is I think far more problematic. This identifies the groaning of creation with death in all its forms, including predation and carnivory. That's eating meat. Uh, it suggests that the giving over of animals for our food was a concession to the fall, that texts like Isaiah 65.25 speak of death, a death-free future. This form of non-eating is proleptic in that it demands we move to a quote-unquote cruelty-free way of life. It is more of a totalizing way of thinking than the other two views, for it mourns all death. And now while I understand that the temptation to adopt this view, not withstanding uh, my own personal biases due to my present diet, this view typically founders on a lack of a solid biblical foundation, I think. Isaiah 65 is clearly symbolic of the end of violence in the human realm in the defeat of the serpent of Genesis 3. I find it interesting that Jesus' meals by the seaside involves fish, a far cry from a recent ad campaign, a recent when I wrote this, so it's a few years ago now, that equates eating fish to murder or rape. That's pretty full on. Notwithstanding the pain that is felt or the unnecessary suffering that can be inflicted, the direct equating of human and animal suffering um, equating of human and animal suffering is a sort of idolatry that Paul, I think, warns against in Romans chapter 1. Although much more work, I think, needs to be done at the same time. Abandoning our separateness as the image of God to take better care of creation is doomed to repeat the errors of history. Uh, maybe eating meat will end in the eschaton, um, but I think much humility is needed in, in the development of these ideas. And certainly in our desire for consumption. So it's two-way street, really, I think, is what I'm saying. So to conclude, then, it's worth saying something about how our groaning should be more than devotional, that is prayer, or abstinence, that is diet. We can actively groan, groaning with shovels and weeding, groaning and walking and riding rather than driving, groaning and giving up stuff we do not need, and so on. And so I return to an earlier theme, the passive nature of Romans 8. Creation is passive in that its groaning is relieved by our adoption. We are passive in our groaning in that we are adopted. We do not adopt ourselves out. It's all God's work. So why then actively groan? Well, one might put it like this. We can save the wells, but only God will save the world. We don't bring the end forward, but we do live as if the end had begun, as if, as the old sandwich board says, the end is nigh. Our actions may look like those around us, but our motivation and expectations are different. Ultimately, our groaning cannot be measured by our groanings cannot be measured by our degree of success or failure, but by our hearts and the pain we are willing to share and to feel. But more than that, our groaning is not simply born of the despair we should feel, but also the hope that we, the whole of humanity and the whole of creation, needs to hear. So next time you read the news about an environmental disaster or about the dying reef or the rising temperatures and sea levels and so on, as a Christian, I, I, I urge you to consider your need to groan with creation, to hear its voice, to listen to those who live close alongside it, to indigenous peoples who've lived you know, in Australia, for example, our Aboriginal peoples who've lived since time immemorial, to use a phrase, alongside the land and managed it well and lived alongside it and understood it 
uh, and the idea that if your kid looks after country, it looks after you. And hear how people have mourned and think about how we might mourn and groan with creation and look forward to resurrection. Thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.